Hey, one more time. Wasn't it awesome to see all those college grads up front? That was awesome to see. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, if you're not here, this entire service is kind of dedicated uh, to the college students. With that in mind, uh, one of the Chi Alpha bands from the University of Virginia led us in worship. And then uh, right now, um, we're going to hear a message, a teaching on follow Jesus from another uh, student that'll be graduating from the University of Virginia in just a few days. And so let's give a warm welcome to Peter Hartwig, my son, as he comes to preach. He and I are related. <clears throat> Good morning. <clears throat> uh, my name is Peter Hartwig, and uh, I am a fourth year at UVA. I am, like Gray, a classics and religion double major, and I will be graduating, and then I'll do something <laughs> for someone who has money to pay. <laughs> if, if there are any takers. God provides. I, um, I talked to my dad a couple weeks ago about the thought of doing this, uh, this college day. And I said, okay, well, if, if I did it, what would you want me to talk about? And he said, well, the sermon series is following Jesus. And I said, isn't that kind of a little vague, you know, like following Jesus? Isn't, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, isn't that kind of, you know, like everything, like what doesn't fall into the category of follow Jesus? And he said, you'll be able to handle it. And I said, why don't you ever help me with anything? And he said, I want you to grow up, son, so that you know how to do things on your own. And I said, you never support me in anything I want to do, Dad. And he said, this is a teaching moment. And then I marched down the hallway into my room and shut my door and said, your jokes aren't funny. And nobody is a waffle person. I don't know about you and your kids, but that's what family fights are like when your son wants to be a theologian and you are a pastor. We fight over things like, you can't wear jeans when you preach. Why can't I wear jeans when I preach? Jeans look, yeah, but it's not really the ethos. I don't care what the ethos is, dad. You're the worst dad pastor ever. Dad. So this morning, we're going to talk about following Jesus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here it comes. So uh, last week, Pete Bulette, in case you don't know, only Pete's can preach at this church. Last week, Pete Bulette gave a sermon on the kingdom of God. And the argument goes, the kingdom of God is a remarkably important concept in understanding how it is we organize or think about or follow through on our lives as Christians. And this week, I would like to bring uh, probably more of a question than a thought, but I think it is the most, it has been for me at least, the most important question in following Jesus. And this was the question that brought me to the brink of losing my faith, and this is the question that drove me into theology and that sort of keeps me awake at night. And the question is this, what does it look like to follow Jesus when Jesus is gone? What does it look like to follow Jesus when Jesus is gone. I think this is a wildly 
important question. I don't think we ask it very often. I think most people's faith is more tested by this question than consciously know it. The problem is there are moments in our lives where our experience and what we believe don't match up so well. And if you believe you're following Jesus, but you've never met him, it can be hard to figure out what exactly is going on. How do you follow Jesus when Jesus is gone? I noticed recently that Jesus is not here. I don't know if anyone else has noticed this recently, but Jesus is, has not been around for quite some time. And I did a little math, and it's a good 2,000 years, but I, I, I came around to this recently, that Jesus uh, has been absent for some time. So in order to figure out how to follow Jesus, when Jesus is not physically present to us, when the body of Jesus of Nazareth is not in the room, but is seated at the right hand of the Father, what does it look like to follow Jesus when Jesus is there? We're going to take a look at the disciples. The disciples are the people that actually followed Jesus, and we're going to take a look at three moments in the disciples' lives. The first one uh, will be in John 16, and that's the question of, uh, that, that's Jesus' actual answer to this question. John 16, 7, Jesus actually gives an answer to the question of what does it look like to follow Jesus when Jesus is not physically present. The second moment will be when Jesus leaves. That's Matthew 26, when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the final moment is 50 days after Jesus is actually gone, and that is the second chapter of Acts. So I want us to look at these stories and bring to bear on them this question, what does it look like to follow Jesus when Jesus is gone? I think a lot of times we say to ourselves a sentence that start with, if Jesus were only here, then it would be better, or I wouldn't have this cavity, or I'd pay off my student debt or something. If Jesus were only here, X would be better, and I'm just going to put all my cards on the table here. My argument goes like this. Following Jesus when Jesus is gone looks like walking in the Spirit. Following Jesus when Jesus is gone is all about the Holy Spirit. So now you can all zone out, and you don't have to read any of the Bible passages, because that's all I'm going to say today. But following Jesus when Jesus is gone looks like walking in the Spirit. So why don't we turn to the first biblical passage. Let's go to John 16. Uh, this is uh, near the end of the Gospel of John, and it's in a section of the Gospel of John that biblical scholars call the farewell discourses. And they're a long series of teachings, the final teachings that Jesus gives his disciples before he leaves. It's what we know also as the Last Supper. This is John's account of the Last Supper. It's just hours before his arrests. This is his last words to his disciples. And the Gospel of John writes this. In verse 7, he says, uh, you know what? Let's go back to verse 5. That might give better context. Now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, some of you probably have helper, some of you probably have comforter, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. I have two problems with this. <clears throat> the, the primary problem is, doesn't Jesus just sound a little bit heretical? You know, just a little bit, right? Like if Jesus goes, it will be better. If Jesus goes, he'll send the helper or the advocate. And I'm thinking, what more help do we need, Jesus? You know, isn't Jesus enough, Jesus? Jesus, you're on awfully thin theological ice here. 
you know, almighty son of God created the universe, that whole thing. What more help could we need if Jesus has already done his thing? Wouldn't you rather spend a life with Jesus there to be able to follow Jesus and hear Jesus and talk to Jesus? But Jesus goes, it's better for you if I step out of the picture. For someone who was raised to appreciate what Jesus does, how much Jesus has, does to, has done, to hear Jesus say that can be a little disorienting to me. And uh, I think the second, I, I think this is what the disciples are hearing. I think the disciples go, wait, 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 no, 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 don't leave. Don't, don't, don't leave. Why would you leave? Don't go. Can't you do a kind of eternal youth thing where you're like, Stay around from other, and, and you don't age. And if you make it all the way to the technological revolution, we'll give you a Twitter handle and a YouTube channel. We can set you up on Good Morning America. You'll be everywhere with everybody all the time. You can get like an iPhone with everybody's numbers in it in the entire world. And whenever I need a sense of direction, I just look down and bloop, Jesus has told me exactly what I need to do. Wouldn't it be better if Jesus were just around forever? That's the moment where I think we might think to ourselves, it would be better if Jesus were around because blank. It would be better if Jesus were here because then he could tell me what to do, or it'd be better if Jesus was here because then Jesus could my, be my personal counselor and best friend. It sounds a little bit childish, like this is what I thought about when I was a kid. You'd be like, well, if Jesus loves me so much, then where is Jesus, you know? But I think it's a question that we seriously ask ourselves. I think sometimes following Jesus might feel more like the absence of God for whatever reason. I think there are a whole host of things that bring that into our lives, tragedy or doubt or you don't understand something, but I think the absence of God is a particularly powerful feeling, and I think it happens even to people who follow Jesus. <clears throat> so I wish I could road trip with Jesus, you know? Like I could just kind of clear away my seat in my green Saturn, which has no personality and okay gas mileage. And Jesus would hop into the car with me, and then I'd go, where do you want to go, Jesus? And in an audible voice, Jesus would go, Asheville, North Carolina. And then the two of us would get in the car, and we'd hike down 29, and we'd get on our way to North Carolina. And my gas tank would magically be on F the entire way. And the radio would play all my favorite songs. And then I could ask him questions like, Jesus, you know, is it a sin to play video games? And he'd be like, no, you know. And then all the other things I've ever been worried about my entire life in middle school, you know, like, is it a sin to go to prom? No, it's a good time, you know. Like, all the things that I have ever bothered me, I could just kind of unload on Jesus in the car, and it's a good eight hours away to Asheville. I mean, wouldn't it be much better if following Jesus were more like that? Wouldn't it be much better if when you read the Gospels, you were able to be there and see all that stuff, you know? I think a lot of us read the Bible with a weird kind of nostalgia, like, we feel like we should be in the Gospels. If only we were in the Gospels and we saw the stuff and we heard the words. And My friend Dick Foth, who preached here, I guess a couple months ago now, uh, often says he wishes he had a Bible with inflection so that when Jesus says to St. Paul, you know, my grace is sufficient, what exactly does that sound like? Does that sound like my grace is sufficient? Or is it like my grace is sufficient? Or is it like my grace is sufficient? Like my grace is sufficient? Or maybe it's a little ironic, like, oh, my grace is sufficient. You know, what does that sound like? Like, what does it sound like when Jesus talks? There's so much that goes, uh, there's so much that's communicated by our body language or our inflection. And I think we wish it would be better, it would be easier, it might be more compelling or easier to believe or more comforting if we were only in the Gospels. But I, I would like to suggest that following Jesus while Jesus is here really doesn't look all that glorious. 
it might look eerily close, in fact, to something like failure. So if you turn with me to Matthew 26, we'll hop on to our next biblical passage. Jesus had a three-year ministry. He got a lot done for a guy, only around for three years, but Jesus had a three-year ministry, and at the center of that ministry were these 12 disciples. Twelve, as you may note in the Bible, is a particularly important number. It sounds awfully like the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus, in calling 12 disciples, stands in as the God of Israel, who calls Israel to follow him. And, and one of the more famous of these disciples is named Peter, which is the second best name in the whole New Testament. Again, only Peters are allowed to preach at this church. And they, these, these 12 guys, they follow him for three years, and they, like, get to see everything, you know? Like, they, see all, they eat the multiplied loaves and fish. They're out there in their kayaks, and Jesus comes walking across the water. That seems very compelling, you know? And um, they get all the inside scoop on all the parables. So anytime Jesus says anything that's a little tough to understand, they go to Jesus, and they say, what was that about? And then Jesus goes, <laughs> let me tell you. And they get, the interp- they get the orthodox interpretation of everything Jesus has ever said. The problem is, of course, that they're horrible at doing more or less anything. Peter constantly says too much, which, you know, I can't relate to. But, um, <laughs> and, and they, you know, they either say too much or too little, or they, like, try and keep the kids away from Jesus. And if you want to get angry, try and keep kids away from him. Um, they... They kind of, they have this weird sort of cliquish infights where they're like, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. Jesus, tell them I'm the best. And those are the 12 guys that God picks to follow him for his three years on earth. So they get all the inside scoop and they basically never get it right. And this is pretty much the last and worst moment where they don't get it right is Matthew 26. Here's what Matthew writes. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. You'll never forget this. Matthew 26, 36 to 46 says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee over there along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and, strike one, found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch for me for an hour? He asks Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he went away a second time and prayed. My father, it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping, strike two, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples, strike three, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is like the most hardcore morning devotional of all time. Um, my girlfriend is a morning person, which is admirable and annoying, and she wakes up at about six in the morning and she meanders over to the Center for Christian Study and gets her coffee and the word and does the, you know, like the stuff Christian girls say, this coffee and the word in the morning. This is the opposite of that. Maybe if the disciples were college-aged evangelical girls, the whole, you know, stroke of human history would have been different, but as it is, <laughs> none of the 12 disciples managed to keep it together. 
And Jesus, Jesus looks at them and says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of you know that the flesh is weak? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have, uh, I'm writing a thesis at UVA, and it's like the thing I'm most passionate about in the world. I need to turn in 60 pages by the first. I have 40 pages to go. And you'd think, <laughs> you know, you'd think, man, if this is your passion in life and you're super into this, wouldn't you have written this, I don't know, like four years ago or one year ago, but only after about a $100 pact with my neighbor have I started to really make up the distance. Or um, I used to lead a Thursday morning Bible study with Gray, who played guitar up here on the lawn, and we discovered something, that at 8 a.m. on a Thursday, all the driven people are working and all the, biz all the lazy people are asleep. So we rebranded it to Friday morning at 10, where we learned that all the busy people are working and all the lazy people are asleep. And uh, in our spiritual lives, I think we often have similar experiences, you know, like you have a great missionary story and you think like, man, that sounds awesome, I could also really tear it up in Beijing or something, and then you like don't ever follow through with that, you know, or someone gives a really compelling testimony and you're like, Jesus is awesome, look what Jesus did. Or maybe you're praying and you feel like you're led a certain way, but you just kind of spiritually can't get out of bed. You know, every time Rachel reads her Bible in the morning, my girlfriend, I'm in bed, hair like I've finished an exorcism, half asleep. It's just not, it's, there's real, the flesh is weak. And um, I, uh, I think that might be one of those moments where we go, you know, if only Jesus were here. If only Jesus were here. So uh, over spring break, I went on a soul-searching mission because my girlfriend had already made plans, and I drove to Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, as I was driving, I thought, maybe I'll use this time to pray. So I turned off the radio, and I rolled up the windows, and I moved all the Chick-fil-A stuff off the seat next to me, and I prayed, you know, Jesus, join me in the car, and I thought maybe Jesus did, and then I said, you know, thank you for keeping me safe. Isn't it remarkable that the God of the universe keeps my green Nissan safe as I am driving to Asheville, North Carolina? Think of all the things that he keeps me safe from. I could speed and run off the road, or speed and hit a car, or speed or go off an overlook. Oh my gosh, there's an overlook. Look at that pretty overlook. And then I pull off the car, and then I took this selfie. And um, 20 minutes later, <laughs> 20 minutes later, after inviting Jesus to the car, I'm at an overlook in Tennessee, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I left Jesus in the car. And then I have to go back off the overlook, and I kind of went, didn't you want to come with me? And he didn't say anything, and I couldn't see him. And I think sometimes we wonder, maybe wouldn't you be able to stay awake to pray if Jesus were there? You know, like if the Son of God, Almighty God, had said, hey, things aren't going so well for me right now, would you mind praying for me that you'd get the Red Bull or the Coca-Cola or whatever keeps you up at night, and you would pray as long as Jesus wanted you to pray? That's exactly what happens with the disciples. The Son of God, Almighty Jesus, comes to them and says, could you pray for me? I think I'm going to die soon. And then they don't, and then he dies. How bad do those guys feel? Like the last thing they did was forget to pray for Jesus. I don't think it often gets that bad in our own lives. But I would just like to suggest, as a passing observation from this story, that looking Jesus, following Jesus often looks more like failure than it does anything else when Jesus is here. Following Jesus, when Jesus is physically in the world, looks a lot more like failure. The disciples in all the Gospels, they never get it. They're scared in the boat. 
they always say too much, or they keep the kids away. As long as Jesus is here, they don't get it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Interestingly enough, those two words, spirit and flesh, in Greek, the word spirit is pneuma, in Greek, the word flesh is sarx, they appear in two other places in the Bible. They appear in the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28, where God says, then afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And they appear also in the second chapter of Acts, where St. Peter stands up, gives a sermon, in which he quotes Joel 2, 28. Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So why don't we turn there now? Matthew 26 calls out to Acts 2. So, not much happens between Matthew 26 and Acts 2, except for three Gospels. But narratively, in the storyline, very little happens except for the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. But the point is, they're very close together time-wise. And uh, the, the Gospel writer who wrote Luke also wrote Acts. He tells us that. And uh, the, the, gospel, the book of Acts opens up where Jesus has ascended into heaven. And Jesus says to them, uh, go into Jerusalem, wait and pray until the Holy Spirit falls on you. And uh, so they do that. The disciples, they gather some other people, they go into Jerusalem and they wait and pray for the Holy Spirit to come, for the helper to come, for the advocate to come. And uh, Luke writes this. When the day of Pentecost came... All these guys were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and, the, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So it's like, boom! All of a sudden, the helper's there with a grand entrance with like strobe lights and the pounding bass music like the beat drops and the Holy Spirit shows up. That's a very dramatic entrance in the Bible. Lots of people have dramatic entrances in the Bible, but this element is my favorite. And there's the helper. Boom, beat drops, helper shows up. The helper comes in with a real bang in a way that no one had previously expected. If you would like to know what to make of all this miraculous stuff, like the speaking in tongues and the tongues of fire, come back when my dad preaches on Pentecost, and I'm sure he'll cover it beautifully. But the, the crowd is understandably a little perplexed at this event. And so they say, and in verse 12, amazed and perplexed, the crowd, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, making fun of them said, they have had too much wine which is like the first theology giggle in the New Testament. <laughs> and then uh, Luke writes, then Peter stood up with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. And you have to imagine that the other 11 is like, no, 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 don't let him talk. Basically anyone but him. Like if there's anyone who the last four gospels has never had anything helpful to say, it's this guy. He's not the one that should be talking. We should find anybody else. Or maybe if Jesus were here, Jesus could tell us what to say. But Peter stands up and he opens his mouth and maybe the rest of the 11 of them are cringing. And then he starts preaching and he says this, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And that's the second theology in the New Testament. 
No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Or in the NIV, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The crowd asked the question, what does this mean? And Peter says, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. This is a very long sermon, so we're going to jump farther down and go to, um, let's go to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So Peter, who has not had anything useful to say in the last four Gospels, stands up and gives a remarkably coherent sermon. The crowd goes, what does this mean? And he says, the Holy Spirit has been poured out because Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and they say, what should we do? And he says, be baptized. What does this mean? Jesus is Lord. What should we do? Go and be baptized. It's a wonderfully clear message in a book that sometimes can be a little convoluted. And I think, I don't know about you, but I think that these are the two passing observations that I get from that sermon. And the first is this, that God is close to us. In the Holy Spirit, God is close. Peter says that this prophecy is for all those who are far off. I'm assuming that most of you were not born Jewish or raised in the Jewish faith. I think lots of us, sometimes, as Americans, in that nasty little thing called American exceptionalism, can sometimes feel like everything Jesus did live for and died for was for us and for our pilgrim forefathers. But the vast majority of this book deals with people who have very little to do with us, and they are called the Jews. And for the vast majority of this book, they are called God's people. And then you get to Acts 2, and their title as God's people has been flung open for us to join too. Can you imagine, every single one of you, how far God had to go to get to you? 2,000 years, and across most of Europe, or maybe most of Africa, and across the whole Atlantic Ocean, to find you here? This prophecy is for all those who are far off, all those whom God has called. God has gone to great distances to be close to us. He has made Jesus both Lord and Christ and sent the Holy Spirit to us. The second thing that I think about is that uh, th this, this line, he made him both Lord and Christ. The Holy Spirit is close and Jesus is Lord and Christ. How many of us are often grateful that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus is the king of the world? Jesus bears the title, Lord of the world and Christ, not Caesar, not the economy. Those are real and they are challenges. Sometimes they are great opportunities, but Jesus 
is Lord of the world. Jesus is Lord of the world, and God is close to us. And it seems to me, just as a passing observation, that all you've got to do to get close to God is get really enamored with this idea and this person that Jesus is Lord of the world. That's what the Gospels are there for. The Gospels are the four versions of Jesus' life that are written and directed to want you to want to be close to that guy. And then the punchline in Acts 2 is that God is close to us in his spirit, that his spirit has been poured out on all flesh. In technical terms, this is what we call theological history. You can tell history from God's point of view. You can read the whole Bible asking the question, where is God? First, God's spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis, and then God walks in the Garden of Eden. Then God is high in the sky after the fall. Then God is close to Israel in the cloud and the pillar, then close to Israel in the tabernacle, then close to Israel in the temple, then close to Israel in Jesus Christ, and then close to the whole world in the Holy Spirit. The Bible ends where God's face lights up the whole world. The lamb was their light. There's no need for any sun or moon anymore. And we're in that second to last period. Acts 2 is a door that's open that's never been closed. You don't have to try to get into the Gospels. God is close to us exactly where we are. So look what happens when Jesus leaves. Only when Jesus is gone do the disciples finally get it. Do they finally get that he was on about this kingdom of God thing? Do they finally get that God's plan is to make him Lord and Christ of the world? And that's what we have the helper, capital H, there for. It is important to remember that the Holy Spirit is, after all, God. That the Holy Spirit can do crazy and previously unexpected things. It's when the Spirit shows up that we can be better disciples of Jesus. It's when the Spirit shows up that we are close to God in a way that we can stand and proclaim the word, maybe even in languages that we have not previously learned. The Spirit works in miraculous and curious and very interesting and unexpected ways to help us be disciples of Jesus, be followers of Jesus when Jesus is gone. It's better, Jesus says, that I leave. And the good news is, he has not come back yet. The good news is, Jesus is still as gone as he was at the end of the Gospel of Luke, as he was at the beginning of Acts, and the Spirit is just as close as it was in Acts 2. So, what would you do if you wanted to be a part of all this? What would you have to or need to or think you might do? I have a lot of friends who uh, don't call themselves Christians, and you know those moments where you want to make the conversa conversation about Jesus now, and we all have our favorite question, like, what do you think about the Bible? Or like, what do you think about the church? Or what do you think about the teachings of Jesus? My favorite question, and this is just me, is do you feel far from God? And my friends most of whom don't call themselves Christian, often say yes with a kind of, like a disorienting certainty. It's like they've thought about it or something, and they didn't know they were thinking about it. Do you feel far from God? And then just go, yeah. I feel, I've gotten that answer in hot tubs at the Outer Banks and on the tops of mountains and fishing by the river. Do you feel far from God? Yeah. If you ask Christians this, they'll usually go, 
well, I haven't read my Bible very much, and I haven't prayed very often, and I know he's there, but it's not really his fault. And I was driving, and I went over the overlook, and I took that selfie, so maybe he's a little miffed at me. And I just... So what would you have to do? If you're in the... Do you feel far from God? Yes. Or do you feel far from God? Well, I haven't done very much. If you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you aren't... If you are not caught up in the Christian faith in any way, I would just suggest that the way of starting to draw near to God is to read the Gospels, is to get to know Jesus. I do not want to discount Jesus. I don't want to throw Jesus out. We are called Christians for a reason. If you want to get to know God, why don't you start with the Gospels? Why don't you start with the remarkably interesting and curious little stories of what God did while God was here? Read it all the way up to Acts 2, and then keep reading Acts. You know what? You could just start back at the beginning in Genesis and just do the whole thing through if you wanted. And I'm sure the person next to you, and I'm volunteering them for this, would love to do it with you. If you are a Christian, if you follow God for years, and maybe you feel like you can't spiritually get up out of bed in the morning, I don't know, but I think, I think, that maybe one of the ways to start doing the spirit thing is to start looking for the Spirit. Maybe. If the Spirit is really poured out on all flesh, all flesh in the whole world, maybe what you're just supposed to do is start looking for the Spirit. Look for it at work, or look for it at school, or look for it in your kids. Maybe just start looking for the Spirit. And if you don't know what the Spirit looks like, Maybe read the Gospels or read Acts. There's a whole book that's built to tell you this kind of information in wonderfully entertaining stories, the Gospels and Acts. If you feel like you're spiritually still in bed, you can't get up in the morning and you're a Christian, why don't you look at that? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh kind of became my theme verse in college. Because when I hear the word flesh, and I don't know about you, flesh sounds kind of gross. You know, I'm not really a flesh... Look at that flesh. What did that even look like? And, um, and college is kind of gross. You know, like we live in houses that are falling down around us, and um, there's lots of yelling, and, and uh, you know, people drink a certain substance that makes them do stupid things, and um, college, is, college is kind of disgusting. I mean, we're all like packed in together in so many places, and everyone's exhausted all the time, and then they take tablets to make them less exhausted, and they all look like ghosts, you know? And I thought, if, if, if God really says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, that I could also find the spirit there. That there was nowhere at UVA, which when I was a first year, was called by Playboy, the number one party school in the country. And I still can't figure out like, why or who decided they were allowed to do that. But um, I thought, there's nowhere that I can go, there's nowhere too gross, where I can't find the Holy Spirit. My, if, if my friends live in parts off ground that I would not go to in my own free time, if I went to visit them and to be a friend to them there, that I could find the Holy Spirit there, that at like 4 a.m. in the morning or 11 or whenever it was when my early morning classes were, even though I was tired and groggy and studying econ, that I could probably find the Spirit there if I really, really looked. And I don't have enough time to tell you lots of stories, but I think it worked. I've had a fantastic time in college following Jesus. And uh, this is just a plug for those of you who have children that might soon be going off to college. <clears throat> Dad, 
No, my dad knows this already. College can be a time of remarkable growth for young Christians. Colleges are places where God seems always to have been faithful, to always have done remarkable things. God's Spirit loves college campuses. We say that Jesus calls sinners as though like Satan has this giant bank account of sinners and Jesus has a smaller bank account and he's just like trying to get people over. But I just had this thought that maybe Jesus calls sinners because they're really interesting. I have the most boring testimony I have ever heard. I'm a pastor's kid and I'm a little sassy and I'm into theology. <laughs> that has never converted anyone. But other people are like, I'm a drug lord in Oaxaca, and I got this tattoo from the Ayatollah Khomeini, and then I saw Jesus in a dream, and like, look at all these people that I invite into my house because I'm generous and I care about human life now. And I'm thinking like, I've got this big mole because I'm Italian, and I go off into the beach, and you know, yeah. Once or twice I've gotten financial aid to do cool stuff. I mean, like Jesus doesn't really show up for me like he shows up for lots of people. But Jesus has shown up for lots of people in college the way, uh, in ways that they never would have expected. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. I, um, so for me, this whole sermon draws out of, of this experience and then I'll close. Uh, I was sitting in a library at UVA uh, with a friend of mine named Ashley Callback. And we were... Um, telling stupid Bible jokes because we're us. And um, I said, you know, the disciples never get it until Jesus is gone. And then all these things just started to make sense to me. I mean, he just had this massive panic attack. And I ran out of the library and I called my dad four times until he picked up and I was like, I figured it out, man! <laughs> For me personally, as I continued to think through that, I noticed something that Jesus renames Peter, but the Spirit really renovates Peter. The word uh, Petros in Greek means rock. And uh, Jesus comes up to Simon, uh, or Jesus comes up to Cephas, and uh, says, we're going to call you rock. You're going to be the stable one. You're going to be the one that we can rely on. And you get four Gospels of him never doing that very well. But in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit shows up, and Peter gets a good enough reputation that a lot of people in the world now think he was the first pope. No one will ever think I was a pope. You know, I am definitely the lesser Peter here. But that, that little name connection for me started opening up to me. If, Peter could do, if the Spirit could do that in Peter, that Peter, maybe he could do it in this Peter. If Jesus renames him, but the Spirit renovates him, and I've been following Jesus for years. Maybe the Spirit is willing to renovate me too. I would bet, knowing God and reading his book, that anybody could ask that question and God will emphatically say yes. God is really into that renovation. God's Spirit is happy to be with us. And Christ in heaven and Christ close to us in the Spirit is glad when it happens. Why don't we call up the worship team now and kind of move into closing. Father, would you like to take the reins here? <laughs> there's, a, there's one final thought I'd just like to leave, and it's this. In Ephesians 4.30, St. Paul says, 
Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And when he starts talking about what grieves the Holy Spirit, he writes this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slender, every form of malice. If you find that in your life, I would suggest you think heavily on this verse. What grieves the Holy Spirit evidently isn't embezzlement or mass murder. It's things as small as slander or envy or malice, being angry and uncomfortable and frustrated. I think as a practical application, no one probably can get away from those things scot-free. The Spirit is concerned with uh, your simple interpersonal interactions. The Spirit does remarkable and unexpected things. It does them in your work and in your school, and it does them between you and your friends. So I would just hope that you think about that. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's doing remarkable stuff, and Jesus is glad when he does it. Uh, thank you for turning over to the reins to the little one this week, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed Chi Alpha Christian Takeover. Thank you, Peter. Let's stand together. As we stand together, the worship team's going to begin to play. I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes just for a moment in God's presence. Can we do that together? Just close your eyes. Following Jesus when Jesus is gone. I think that resonates with almost every one of us. We wish that the tangible Jesus would get in the driver's side of our car and tell us three times exactly what he wants and exactly where we're to go. My son taught us from a biblical story where that's exactly what Jesus did. Three times in physical form. He told the disciples exactly what he wanted, and they didn't do it. But here's the incredible news. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all flesh, you included. Will you be open to the Holy Spirit this morning as we conclude our time? Will you open up your heart to the Holy Spirit of God? Would you be willing to do that as we close in prayer? Oftentimes at the end of our service, we have a time of prayer up front, but the hour has progressed and it's gotten quite late. So we're going to conclude our time together by just through prayer and through faith, opening up our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Let's do that together. Jesus, as we stand before you, we open up our hearts by faith to who you are through the power of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come upon this flesh. Holy Spirit, come upon the flesh that's to the left of us and to the right of us, in front of us and behind us. Holy Spirit, do a work in us, do a work through us, and we trust as you do that, each and every one of us would follow Jesus and serve others. Jesus, thank you for who you are to us. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit that we would never, ever be alone and help us to trust you that when you say it is better that you would exit and that the Spirit would come, that we would believe you and we would trust you that it is true. 
So Holy Spirit, be poured out on all flesh this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are to us. And dear people, now to, to conclude our service, if you would like to stay in worship, you can. If you would like to exit, please do so quietly. But as we do, let's go looking for the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. And now may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May he cause his face and his Holy Spirit to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. God bless you. You can exit or remain in an attitude of worship. We'll see you next Sunday with a friend.
Oh 